0: So, did you make any resolutions? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you did, how's it going? How are you doing? Well, according to the statistics, 50% of people make some kind of New Year's resolution, but 88% of them fail. Why is the failure rate so high? Well, no doubt there's lots of factors, but in his incredibly insightful analysis of the cultural phenomena we call making New Year's resolutions, Christian counselor and author David Pallison observes that they fail in such large measure because, generally speaking, they merely express good intentions and they propose self-dependent solutions. It's really a bit ironic when you think about it. Consider what a resolution is. So the word resolution, by definition, it means coming to a firm and determined decision to do something, to behave in a certain manner, to abide by certain principles. That sounds decidedly Christian, Pallison notes. Considered from this angle, the Nicene Creed is one sort of resolution And statements in Psalm 119 like, I am your servant, I promise to keep your words, is another example of resolve. So when you resolve blank, it means you formally express what you believe, will, or intend. It's a stand you take, a direction you choose. Put that way, Paulson observes that the entire Christian life might be conceived as a lifelong determination to make and walk out new creation, everyday resolutions. That's a great phrase. New creation, everyday resolutions. Although our culture has practically no sense of the true meaning of a resolution, The Apostle Paul sure did. And in our text this morning, we see three of his firm and determined resolutions. I invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 of chapter 4, which is the start of our text this morning, begins with the word, therefore. Whenever you see that word, therefore, in Scripture, you know it's referring to what comes before. And so it's really important, I think, as we get into our text, that that we see what the therefore is talking about. And so I I ask you to follow along as I begin reading reading at chapter 3, verse 7. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. in the face of Jesus Christ. So, the ministry that Paul's referencing here in verse 1 refers to that of the new covenant. As Moses mediated God's presence under the old covenant, the law, the Old Testament, Paul mediated God's presence through the Spirit under the new covenant. This new covenant, prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah, promised things that the old covenant did not have a new heart leading to the internalization of God's law. It promised unbroken fellowship with God, unmediated knowledge of God, and unconditional forgiveness of sins. So what Paul is saying here in in 3, 7 through 18 is that if the old covenant was great, which it was, just think how much better the new covenant is. So Paul tells the Corinthians, therefore, because God has mercifully made me a minister of this amazing, far superior covenant, because of that, I don't lose heart. Rather, I'm courageous and confident because the Spirit has enabled me to preach and minister an unveiled gospel. So out of this confidence that Paul has, we see three resolutions, three commitments that Paul had As a new covenant minister of the gospel, Paul was resolved to use the right methods, to preach the right message, and to trust in God's illuminating power. Well, like Paul, we have been given the ministry of the new covenant. And so these resolutions that he has must be our resolutions as well. So first, first, we must be resolved to use the right methods. Use the right methods. These methods Paul describes in verses 2 and 3, the disgraceful and underhanded ways that Paul renounced, literally the hidden things of shame, these are things that you wouldn't want any, anyone else to know about. Paul kept nothing hidden. There was no fine print. He didn't use the bait and switch tactic of, Promoting one thing, but actually delivering another? Paul is probably continuing here to distinguish himself from the peddlers of God's word. Chapter 2, verse 17, he, he mentions the peddlers of God's word. These were influential men who had gained a following among the Corinthians. These are guys Paul describes in chapter 11 as false apostles, deceitful workmen who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul wants the Corinthians to know he's not like these spiritual hucksters who misrepresent the message for their own gain. The the cunning ways here that Paul refused to practice were also likely traits of these phony apostles. These guys were really good orators. They would be looked at as like the rock stars of their day. They had a craft. They were really good at it. And they were crafty. The same word here is cunning. They would do anything and they would stop at nothing to get an audience. Paul says, "I'm, I'm not like those guys. Unlike them, we come with no gimmicks, no frills, just God's word straight up and out in the open. You may not like what we say, but you cannot question our integrity. Paul believes that his straightforward proclamation of the truth of the gospel is the only thing that can commend him as a minister of the new covenant. So by forthright openness of his ministry, Paul sought the approval and acceptance of all because he was convinced that when people were true to their consciences in the sight of God, they would be compelled to acknowledge that his ministry as an apostle was real. It was legitimate. I suspect that all of you have seen examples of preachers or ministries that claim the name of Christ, yet are deceptive and cunning in some way, and they manipulate the gospel message for their own gain. And we don't have to look far to see churches that seem geared towards drawing a crowd with a message and presentation that that seems primarily influenced by what the audience wants. Well, in case you didn't already know, this is not the orientation of our church. Nothing we have done here this morning was intended to draw a crowd. And in case you didn't already know, that's, that's not the orientation here of our church, as I stated. And, and I suspect that if you've been here for some time, you could probably share example after example as evidence that of our commitment to the clear, direct, and faithful preaching of what God says in all parts of His Word, not what the masses want to hear. So while we thank God for this commitment to the right methods of our new covenant ministry, and we should, we should acknowledge them and thank God for them, we have to realize and acknowledge that because much of what the Bible teaches is not popular, th- there will be temptations to use shady tactics and to tamper with God's word. I think it's fairly evident that if we tweaked our message to remove, or perhaps even simply de emphasize, the doctrine of eternal suffering in hell, there probably would be a larger response if you somehow minimized or explained away Scripture's position on sexuality and marriage, and you described that and explained it away as intolerant and just a a bit out of date, you would probably be more popular with your classmates, with your coworkers, with neighbors and with friends. But we must always recognize that God's word is sovereign. It determines the message. So so pray for us as a church. And pray for us individually that we would resist any temptation to tamper with the word and that our ministry of the new covenant would be marked by integrity. Some may say to Paul, okay, So you preach this open message, but but why aren't people buying it? He kind of anticipates that in verses 3 and 4, where he says they're not buying it because they can't see it. They've been blinded. If some should reject the gospel, that doesn't in any way discredit my ministry. More on this later. So as ministers of the new covenant, we must be resolved first to use the right methods. Second, we must be resolved to preach the right message. To preach the right message. Verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul begins by saying what his message isn't. He doesn't preach himself. As one commentator put it so well, Paul had no interest in bragging about his superior qualifications or turning the throne of Christ into a soapbox from which to spout his own pet themes and biases. And even though the Corinthians seemed to be drawn by the big personality, it's very likely that they wanted to be entertained as evidenced by their following of these phony apostles. Paul resisted any pressure to display his apostolic prowess more dramatically. He said, no, no, I am not going to preach myself. Paul knew the glorious new covenant of which he was a minister centered around a person. But he knew it wasn't him. And so he preached, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus the name given to the Son of God when he was born in a manger. It means the Lord saves. Christ, the anointed Messiah, which speaks of his being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. Lord, the crucified Christ, has been exalted by God through the resurrection to the position of lordship in heaven. He is now the ruler of the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus Christ is described here twice, in verse 4 and verse 6, as the image of God. Jesus being the image of God, and therefore he possesses and shines forth God's glory. As the author of Hebrews said, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Which is why Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Priceless preaching quickly degenerates into lifeless moralism. Whenever you replace the king with a thing, you may feel really good about your self-reformation. And others may be impressed with what a good person you are. But you have no salvation and you have no transformation. Transformation. The ever-colorful Charles Spurgeon said that a sermon without Christ is like a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead, plucked up by the root, a sky without a sun, a night without a star. It were a realm of death, a place of mourning for angels and laughter for devils. And his kind and gentle counsel to preachers who didn't include Jesus in their sermons. Go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Just as I believe our church has always resolved to use the right methods in our ministry of the New Covenant, I believe that we have also resolved not to preach Christ but to preach ourselves. For over 25 years, think of this. For over 25 years, by God's grace, Pastor Miller has not only used the right methods that we've considered, but week in and week out, he's not preached himself. But Jesus Christ is Lord. This is an infinitely valuable blessing to us as a church. We should be deeply thankful for that. But just as using the right methods in the past is no guarantee that a church will continue to do so, continuing to preach Christ is not a given either. There is no shortage of churches that used to preach Christ, but now have a very different message. So we must pray. We must pray for those who preach in this church that they would continue to lift up Christ and not themselves. Some of you, in the years ahead, will go off to college somewhere. Perhaps some of you will move away, whether it's a job transfer or whatever. And you're going to need to find another church. As you enter into that process, be resolved to place more value on the content of the message preached than on the personality or the style of the preacher. The second message here in verse 5, Paul's resolve to preach, is a bit more surprising. It's, it's a message of himself as a servant of the Corinthians. Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ lots of times in the New Testament. But this is the only place, the only place where he speaks of himself as a slave of his converts. What he means to say is that his service to God was in serving them. Being the slave of Christ who died for them makes them their slaves as well. Garland's captured this so well. says to be a slave of Christ means that all one's possessions, aspirations, time, and labor belong completely to Him. It also means that if Christ is Lord, then those who proclaim His Lordship can't be lords themselves. If Christ took the form of a slave, then those who follow him must be willing to give themselves over to serve others. The glory of God is manifested in the ministry of Paul in the same way it was manifested in the cross of Christ, paradoxically in self-emptying humility and in sacrificial service. And so we sing, brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you and pray that I might have the grace to let you be my servant too. Does your life preach this message of service to others? Start in your home. Husbands, how are you serving your wives and children? Wives, how are you serving your husband and your children? If you're a member of this church, you have covenanted to serve your fellow church members. What does that look like? How is that happening? How are you serving others? In our ministry of the New Covenant, we must use the right methods. We must must preach the right message. And third, we must be resolved to trust in God's enlightening power. To trust in God's enlightening power. This is necessary because of what we see in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the light of the gospel, of the glory of God, Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world here is Satan. Satan. And his dominion consists of lawlessness, darkness, unbelief, worship of idols, and moral defilement, defilements. And it is fundamentally incompatible with the kingdom of light, which is ruled by God's beloved Son. Paul is not describing here some form of dualism, in which competing gods battle for, battle one another for the lives of men and women. No, that's not the case. Satan is limited. okay? Satan is limited. That is, that is that he is only the God of this age. And there are numerous examples in Scripture which show his work is subordinate to the God who is sovereign over every age. Satan is judged, fallen, and coming to nothing. He has been defeated by the cross of Christ. He is a conquered foe. But in his death throes, he has subjects, which Paul calls unbelievers. Satan still has the strength to besiege human minds and to incite them to embrace and exalt evil rather than God. Think of the parable of the sower. The seed is thrown, and it was Satan who came along and snatched the seed before it could take root. Paul says that Satan puts a veil over people's eyes. He blinds them so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. One commentator captured this very clearly by saying, people are not blinded because they choose to renounce the gospel. Rather, they choose to renounce the gospel because they are blind." And they're not blind because they choose to be so, but because Satan has made them so. But God is more powerful than Satan. And he lifts the veil and he gives sight through his darkness conquering, light giving life. Notice there in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, it seems clear that Paul here is referencing Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, there was darkness over the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The God of creation who first called light out of darkness is the only one who has the power to overcome our blindness. And with a word, with a word, dark hearts are overcome with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I wonder this morning as you sit here, Has this light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shined in your heart? Has your veil been lifted? Do you see Jesus? Do you see him at creation? Do you see Jesus throughout the Old Testament, prefigured as the one who would crush the head of the serpent, as the chosen seed of Abraham, through whom all nations would be blessed? Is the one whom the prophets would sound, said would come as a king, a king far greater than David? Do you see Jesus in a manger, leaving all the glories of heaven to assume our nature? Do you see him teaching, not like the scribes, but as one who had authority? Do you see Jesus calming the sea and walking on water, causing the lame to walk and the blind to see? Do you see him casting out demons just by his presence and even bringing the dead to life? Do you see Jesus turned over to the authorities by a friend and facing false charges, facing trial on false charges, yet all the while remaining silent like a sheep being led to slaughter? Do you see Jesus as he felt the whip on his back and the thorns digging into his scalp and nails piercing his hands and his feet as he struggled for air and finally breathed his last breath last breath on a Roman cross? And as he died there, not like so many others had, do you see him in body and soul sustaining the wrath of God against humanity? And as he felt this crushing weight of God-forsakenness, as God laid on him the iniquity of us all, do you see Jesus? Do you see him three days later walk out of his tomb because death could not hold him and soon thereafter ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father where he every day makes intercession for us? Do you see Jesus, full of grace and truth, the image of the invisible God, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, the firstborn from the dead, the Lord our righteousness. Do you see him? Do you see Jesus? I'm not asking if you know about Jesus, but do you really see him? To see him by this divine and supernatural light is to see him as glorious and is to want nothing, nothing more than him. If you admit that you haven't found Christ to be all that compelling and interesting, but there's something in your heart that's giving you the desire and the interest to know more about him. There's something in you that desires to see more of His glory. Praise God. Praise God. That's His mercy. And what you should do is this. You should pray. Ask God to show you Jesus. Ask God to remove the veil and give you sight. And then turn. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon Him in repentance and faith. Chapter 3 and verse 16 promises that when you turn to the Lord your veil will be removed. If you have come to see the truth, it's not because you're smart, but because God has illumined your heart and the darkness in your heart was no match for the light. It couldn't stop it. Consider the words of Wesley that we sang just a few moments ago this morning. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night, totally blind, totally blind to the glories of Christ. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The light came from God, not from within us. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. See, we don't come to the light because we couldn't see it. It came to us. We should humbly thank God for this undeserved mercy and grace. And we've been commanded by Jesus to tell others about this light which we've received. And there's some important application for us here as we consider this call. And I trust it'll be helpful. There's a lot here to think about regarding our evangelism. As a fundamental starting point, we must remember that the reason people aren't seeking God And the reason people reject the gospel is because they're blind. Unbelievers have a veil over their eyes. It's not that they're somehow less intelligent, or it's not that they aren't responding because of this circumstance in their life, or because of this person in their life. They're blind, they cannot see. Don Carson tells of a graduate student at the University of Cambridge who he knew when he was there, who he gave a copy of the book Basic Christianity by John Stott to. So he gives this fellow student this book. She read it carefully. She even looked up a lot of verses Stott referenced in her Bible. And when he asked her some weeks later what she thought of the book, she said, I've decided that Christianity is for good people like you and Carol. Carol was her Christian roommate. But, but it's, it's not for me. Carson asks, How does a graduate student at Cambridge manage to read a clear and lucid author like Stott and come away thinking that the gospel is all about being good people? And he said his mind went to this text. There's only one answer. The God of this world has blinded her eyes so that she could not see. As we realize this all-pervasive, blinding power of Satan, we must be resolved to trust in the illuminating power of God. And as we do, as we trust in the illuminating power of God, I think there will be at least three significant results. First, we will share this gospel of the glory of Christ. As we trust in God's illuminating power, we will shine the light. Although God alone can remove spiritual blindness, he uses messengers of the word to open the eyes of the blind and liberate them from the devil as the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa. He stood before King Agrippa. He's basically giving King Agrippa his life story. He's sharing his testimony. He describes what Jesus had done on the road to Damascus. As we look at this account, we see a striking link between the blinding effects of Satan and our work of shining the light we've received. Paul tells King Agrippa, What Jesus told him, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Doesn't God shine the light into hearts? Isn't God the one who gives sight? breaking the blinding power of Satan? Why then does Jesus tell Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes? God opens the eyes of the blind to the glory of Christ, but he does so by sending people to tell the gospel of the glory of Christ. And this, this is the ministry that we've been given. So in the words of Piper, don't stop trying to open eyes because you can't. Of course you can't. But the fact that you can't make electricity or create light never stops you from flipping light switches. The fact that you can't create fire in cylinders never stops you from turning the car key. The fact that you can't create cell tissue never stops you from eating your meals. So don't let the fact that you can't cause the new birth stop you from telling the gospel. That is how people are born again, through the living and abiding word, the good news of Jesus Christ. In the rest of chapter 4 here, Paul talks about how God uses clay pots. And he tells us why God uses clay pots in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God's aim is that his own power through the gospel be honored, not us. God will do his work through the gospel, and the surpassing power will belong to him, not to us. There is encouragement here in verse 7. In all of this, there's encouragement for ordinary Christians like you and me, we are appointed precisely in our ordinariness for the greatest work in the world, sharing the gospel of the glory of Christ. So so as we meet in home groups today and throughout the rest of this year, let's continue to encourage each other in this challenging privilege of sharing with blind unbelievers the gospel of the glory of Christ. The second result of trusting in the enlightening power of God is that we won't trust in ourselves. We won't trust in ourselves. We're not powerful enough to create the world, and we're not powerful enough to recreate a blind person by giving them sight. We tell others about the light of Christ, but conversion is a result of God saying again, let there be light. So our confidence in declaring this message is not in our presentation, thank God. Thank God it's not in our presentation. Our confidence in this is that again and again, in large numbers or small, God will say, let there be light. And blind men and women will see. Only the God of creation... The one who originally called forth light out of darkness can overcome the blindness of your family member, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker. We must get the gospel right, and we must get it out, but we aren't responsible for the results. Trusting in God's power to save will keep us from trusting in ourselves. And then third, trusting in God's enlightening power will cause us to believe that God can save anybody, will cause us to believe that God can save anybody. I think we have a tendency, I know I do, a tendency to judge by by perceived degrees of blindness. Right? And certainly there are indications of one's interests and desires regarding the glories of Christ. But we must never think that someone is beyond the light penetrating power of God. I mean, consider the Apostle Paul himself. Andrew read the account in our service this morning. As Paul wrote these verses about blindness to the glories of Christ, I don't know what was going through his mind, but I can't help but think he thought back to his past of killing Christians. Paul knew a thing or two about blindness, didn't he? But after being knocked off his horse by a blinding light, God removed the veil from his own eyes and he shined into Paul's heart the glory of God in the face of Christ. Could there be a more unlikely recipient of heart illumination than Saul of Tarsus? Sinclair Ferguson suggests that next time you doubt God's power to save, go out on a dark, starry night Look into the stars and consider that if God is able to do that, no human, is, no human heart is safe from his invasion of light. Who God enlightens and when he chooses to do so is ultimately his business. He doesn't share with us the details of His perfectly wise and sovereign purposes in this regard. But we do know that there is no darkness of heart that His light cannot overcome. And so we speak of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to everyone. And we pray, we pray, we pray. And we trust God to open eyes according to his will, all to the praise of His glorious grace. Well, if you did not make any New Year's resolutions, don't feel bad. I didn't make any. I don't think Jolene made any that I'm aware of, at least. In fact, perhaps you were smart not to, given the success rate. But as those who have received the ministry of the new covenant by the mercy of God, we must, and that's all of us, we must, like Paul, have new creation, everyday resolutions. In our new covenant ministry, we must be resolved to use the right methods. We must be resolved to preach the right message. And we must be resolved to trust in God's illuminating power. Heavenly Father, we thank you for removing our veil, for shining the light of the glory of the knowledge of Christ in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for making us, by your mercy, ministers of your glorious new covenant. This is all your mercy. This is all your grace. As we strive to be faithful stewards of this calling, help us, Father, as a church and as individuals, help us to use the right methods. May we always minister with integrity. And help us, Father, to preach Christ as Lord, not ourselves. And may we not look to be served by others, but rather help us to serve others with the humility of Christ. And grant us, Father, the faith to trust your power to enlighten hearts. And out of this trust, may we boldly proclaim the gospel. Keep us from thinking that we're somehow responsible for the results. And may we truly believe that no heart, no heart is too dark to be overcome by your light. And for anyone here who is yet to see the light of the glory of Christ, please, Father, please, in your grace, open their eyes. Give them light and cause them to see, we ask. All of these things we ask. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Will you stand as we take a moment this morning to reflect in silence on the person and work of Jesus Christ and the application of God's word this morning. Sing in response. All I have is Christ. I once was, I was lost, lost in darkest, darkest night yet thought I knew, I knew the way The sin, sin that and promised joy and light Had led me to the grave I, I had, had no hope, hope that I you would Now God's love displayed, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath, reserved for me, now all I know